We are glad that you are with us here on this Palm Sunday, and as we look forward to all that this week means in remembering the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior, this coming Friday, our Good Friday service will be at 6.30, and we invite you to come. Uh, the last two years, we've had our Good Friday service in our backyard out at the pavilion, and so weather permitting, we will do that again. We'll have an outdoor service at 6.30 and then a campfire afterwards. If you look at the, your phone to say what the weather of the week is, it actually says we'll hit the mid-70s on Wednesday. Uh, I don't usually believe the weather past 24 hours, but this is at least what it's saying. We might hit the mid-70s by Wednesday, and it might cool back down by Friday. So we'll assess that, and on Friday, we'll sort of make the final call. There will be a Good Friday service at 6.30. If it's bad weather, we'll be in here. Uh, and if it's uh, reasonable weather to have a jacket on outside and enjoy a campfire, then we'll be out uh, in the pavilion. And then our Easter service will be here at 10 o'clock normal time. Uh, there might be a few special elements to it, but the place and the time of it is all the same. Uh, and I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to Psalm 14. This is not the traditional Palm Sunday uh, reading of Scripture. Uh, as a church family, we're going through the Psalms uh, week by week, and so here we are on Psalm 14, uh, but I trust that you'll find much of the message in this psalm uh, revealing of the truths that come out that we celebrate in our Savior's triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, to mark that last week of his earthly life before he would go to the cross. And so Psalm 14, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew, is on page 423. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. And that concludes uh, our reading for this morning. One of the things that I think is highlighted uh, quickly in this psalm is sometimes we hear uh, and the truth that is true in many uh, occasions that there is strength in numbers. Uh, and we ought to embrace community more than isolation and it is good uh, when we are with our brothers and sisters in a variety of endeavors. There, there are strength in uh, numbers and many things that we will go through and experience in life and part of even grief and lament is one of those things which is why the psalmists take the time even in their lament to take the time to write them and invite the community of believers to say them together because there's a goodness in numbers at times feeling that sense of strength, that we are not alone in what we are going through. Uh, and so don't forget that, but it is also true, in many instances we see throughout Scripture, that there is also a weakness in numbers. 
there are times where sort of going with the crowd or going with what is most popular at the moment will put us in dangerous territory where we cannot just assume, well, because the majority of people think this way or because the majority of reports are saying this thing or that thing, that that, in fact, must be true. Because part of the story of human history is that, one, there is a component that individually we choose to sin or not sin and we are sinners. But then there's also a reality that because we have a fallen nature, that sin also affects not only us individually, but also uh, most of our collective efforts uh, of organizing ourselves in our world. And so the, the psalm starts by saying, the fool individually says in his heart, there is no God. And then it quickly grows to the plural. They are corrupt. They do abominable, abominable deeds. And there is none who does good. So it goes from the individual to a group to everyone pretty quickly uh, there in that first verse. And again, to highlight that sin can manifest itself from individuals eventually to larger and larger groups. And just because it gets larger doesn't mean it becomes right. We don't judge the rightness or the wrongness or the wisdom or the foolishness of something by how many people do it. What is right is always right. What is wrong is always wrong. It doesn't matter how many people eventually think it's okay to try to do and to get away with. And so if you just think back on some of the stories of Scripture, there was individually the sin of Cain against Abel, but then a few chapters later, in Noah's day, it's clear, actually, that level of violence and injustice has pervaded the whole of humanity. And so now it's not just what happened to Cain and why did he treat Abel in the way that he did, but it's what has happened to humanity that this is how we're treating one another. And so the judgment of God comes upon the whole of humanity because sin had spread in such a profound way throughout humanity. And then after that time, eventually there's the way in which pride manifested itself in the whole of humanity in the Tower of Babel. That there was this unity in humanity to build something that was meant to be a substitute for God. But there again, God looked down upon and didn't say, well, I'm so glad they're all united in their pride. I'm so glad that they're all getting along in rejecting me. I'm so glad that they're equally walking away from my wisdom or my word. And so there, it's the confounding of the languages so that they cannot continue in their united pride. Then we see examples of it in cities, in, uh, after the Tower of Babel, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Abraham's day, as he's thinking of well, God, I know you're going to maybe judge now an entire city or cities because the whole of the cities have become rebellious. There's then this back and forth where um, Abram is asking, well, what if there's a certain amount of believers there? <laughs> what if it's not all and everyone? What if there's a few who have chosen not to do that? And so there's a back and a forth of, well, if there's this many, then we won't. And no, there isn't. Okay, well, what about this many? Well, there's not that many. And then we come to discover there are so few there who are following the ways of the Lord that what is asked of them is just to flee because the judgment is going to come down upon them. 
And then we see that even uh, later not, uh, in, the, in the children of Israel when they together after they're being saved from the oppression in Egypt that the majority of them begin to start worshiping the golden calf. And there again, you say, what is everyone doing right now? What are we all singing about? We're actually all singing to this idol. Why, why are we all singing songs? <laughs> did this idol, did this golden calf, is that who parted the sea? Is that who rescued us from slavery? No, but oftentimes when we see a bunch of people doing something, there is a momentum to it that we ourselves can fall into. It is fun at times to be part of crowds. It's fun to sing with 10,000 people almost no matter what it is you're singing. There's a, a goodness. And when you experience the goodness of that, you also realize the temptation in that. That crowds can be manipulated. Groups can be caused to believe lies. And so there's a danger that if we don't recognize that there is an individuality to sin, but there's also a way in which it eventually pervades our world in such a way that we cannot simply by numbers or the amount of people committed to it judge and determine what is right and wrong. There is a weakness here. Then even in what we celebrate here in the beginning of Holy Week and we think of how many of the religious leaders rejected Jesus. The vast majority of them. There was in his entrance to Jerusalem a moment where his own disciples and a few others kind of entered into a collective praise and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you might say, okay, I'm going with this crowd. But then as you continue to read, that expression doesn't last very long. The majority of people coming up to him that week are coming up to him to question him, coming up to catch him in something. And then it just becomes totally absurd when you read the accounts of those final moments and you say, what was the crowd thinking when they had an opportunity between Barabbas and Jesus to let someone free? That not just an individual made a choice and said, well, let's just go ahead and go, uh, let's let Barabbas free, but actually everybody there went along with, in numbers, the cry crucify crucify and so sin affects us individually but it can also affect all of us together and so we need the wisdom of God's word so that we don't judge things exclusively by how many people believe it or how many people say it but whether it corresponds to reality and truth and there is a weakness in numbers at times that covers and masks the real deceitfulness of sin where we have to be able to look back at times and say, I think the whole thing has been affected. And it's hard to make progress or feel like we're making progress when it seems like nobody knows what the rules are right now. Nobody knows uh, exactly what's happening. Uh, in a lighthearted way, like Psalm 14 could have been written, uh, written if you were observing my kids' YMCA basketball game yesterday. Uh, if you've ever been in a sporting event where the refereeing is happening in such a way that you're like, I don't know anymore what is a foul or not a foul. Uh, I don't know what's going to be called or not, and it often sort of descends into a, a chaos then of how things are played and who knows which way they're supposed to go and which hoop they're supposed to shoot at. And eventually, it, it doesn't become just an individual who's struggling, but it seems like everybody's actually struggling right now, and it's really, really hard in that environment to then feel like 
the choices you make as an individual matter. Because if the system seems to be busted, then there is an opportunity individually to say, well, then why would I even try or care? And there is part of the psalmist acknowledging there are, it seems so many people are not doing what is good. So many people are walking away from what they know about God and rejecting him that part of this is a lament to say, to grieve that reality, but also to not allow that reality to then make the person say, well, so then it really doesn't matter if I follow God or not. And the psalmist is resisting that. But that is one of the temptations when we see so many other people not doing it right or wrong to then just give in to our basic instincts of whatever it is we have to do to survive. Um, we also see in this uh, psalm not only the weakness that potentially is in numbers, but one of the repeated themes, even though we're only 14 psalms into this, is the way in which the psalms describe the poor. And here it is a testimony to the witness of the poor. So first the weakness of numbers and then also the witness of the poor. Here it's revealing that when a society walks away from God, rejects his counsel, goes into foolishness, often uh, that isn't something we can just sort of decide to do in our mind and say we reject God and it doesn't have any impact for how we treat one another. The Bible says those two things always go together. And so if we don't love God well, we won't know how to love each other well. And so if we reject God often, it's because we are not wanting to hold ourselves to the standard which he calls us to in how we treat one another. And so here he says that this group of people who are walking away from God are doing it in part because they have plans and purposes to manipulate the poor and the weak. And there again, that becomes a way, not just that we judge ourselves individually, but that we also judge ourselves collectively as a community of faith and even as a nation and even as a world to measure ourselves by saying, how do the healthiest and the smartest people get along if they join our group is a pretty superficial measurement. Like if the people who are already the brightest and already the strongest and already the best continue to do well, whoop-de-doo. <laughs> That's expected, that should be expected. But if we ask ourselves, how well are those among us who are hurting, who are weak, who have the least amount of authority uh, in our organization? How are we as a country taking care of the most vulnerable, whether they're the youngest or the oldest among us? That's a way in which scripture would compel us to assess ourselves. Not how do we take care of all the people we like, but how well do we take care of those who are the most vulnerable, the most at risk, the most hurting? Do we care for them? Because the promise of the new heavens and the new earth is that in the new heavens and the new earth, all of the children and all of the elderly will have nothing to fear. That's part of the vision. That there will be no vulnerable, that there will be no one at risk. And so when the psalmist is grieving the way in which people have walked away from God and they have rejected him, one of the very practical outcomes of that is the abuse and the injustice that the poor and the weak are going through. And so the psalmist says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, verse 4, who eat up my people as bread and do not call upon the Lord, there they are in great terror 
but for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And so here, (laughs) David is seeing the sinfulness of people in their willingness to commit great injustice against others. And he's grieving it and he's crying out. But he's saying, if you think God does not care about the weakest and the poorest among us, you don't know God. If you knew it and you're foolishly walking away from it, you're still going to be accountable to it. But he's saying, I'm going to remind you, God cares about the poorest among us. He cares about the weakest and the most vulnerable. Not to the exclusion then of everybody else, but it's a way of saying if he cares for the weakest and the poorest and the most vulnerable, it's a way of saying he cares for all of us. And he cares what happens to each and to every one of us. And the psalmist wants us to remember that. Because not only in his day were people walking away and rejecting the poor, but that continues to be a reality even in our own day where we dismiss the needs of people around us. And when we do that, in our minds, walk away from the reality of who God is and the unique way in which he has made us, it will lead to continued harm of the most vulnerable among us. Uh, two, mo- two months ago, I was traveling, and so at the airport, I bought uh, what was at that time the most recent edition of the Atlantic and just wanted to have some reading on the plane. And I was surprised when I saw an article in the magazine called The End of Us Is the Reign of Human Beings on Earth Nearing Its End. And then the article proceeded to talk about two movements that are gaining in popularity among us, one called anti-humanism and the other one called transhumanism. And it describes both of those movements, and I won't read the whole thing to you, but in short, anti-humanism begins, the article says, not with a political program but with a philosophical idea. It's a rejection of humanity's traditional role as Earth's protagonist, the most important being in creation. And from this perspective, all of us together are basically a nuisance to this planet. All of us together are a cancer that needs to be removed, the whole of humanity. And so everything in nature will be better when all of us are gone. Transhumanism, it says, by contrast, glorifies some of the same thing that anti-humanism decries, scientific and technological progress and the supremacy of reason, but it believes that the only way forward for humanity is to create new forms of intelligent life that will no longer be homo sapiens. Some transhumanists believe that genetic engineering and nanotechnology will allow us to alter our brains and our bodies so profoundly that we will escape human limitations such as mortality and confinement to a physical body. And then it goes on to describe how that might be through artificial intelligence and other things. But the basic premise is, no, we're not all bad and we don't all need to disappear, but we're all vulnerable and we might. Like whatever took the dinosaurs out is probably going to take all of us out, is, is sort of how it goes. And so the only way to get ahead of whenever that's going to happen is to figure out a future in which we can extend human consciousness without the limitations of our body. So it's two different ideas, but both of them are basically saying the same thing. You, the whole of you, is a problem. 
How long can you go thinking and then now teaching that the whole of you is the problem before you then start doing really bad things to whole persons? Not very far. We've seen this kind of rhetoric in human history in many times, and it is always a profoundly sad reality that follows it. When we deny that there is a God who made us, and even though we have limitations in our body, those limitations are not fundamentally what is wrong with us. It's how he created us. It's how he made us. And Psalm 14 comes at the end of a section that you could put from Psalm 8 to Psalm 14, and Psalm 8 begins with the recognition in wonder, but that God actually made us and that he knows us and that he cares about us and he cares about the cries even of babies among us. He has given us that. That's who he is. And so he does not look down upon us and say, how do I uh, get rid of all of them? But rather, how do I redeem them? Not how do I uh, crush all of the limitations of their bodies, but how do I honor that and dignify it because it's how I made them. And it is often how we treat the most vulnerable that reveals that. And so the last thing in this psalm uh, that it highlights for us is the wonder of salvation. That God has from beginning to end always cared about those who are hurting. This is actually how the story is told to the children of Israel when they're saved. If you have a Bible, turn it to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. This is on page 142. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. The people have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're about to be brought to the promised land. And this is what God wants to remind them. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It's an amazing reminder to them right before they go into the promised land. God redeemed you and saved you not because you were the greatest, not because you had the most promising future, but in fact because you were weak, because you were vulnerable. And so he proved to you that his love for you is unconditional. It's not based on how smart you are, how well your body works, how promising your future is. It's because he made you and because he loves you. And a group of people who believe that about themselves can then accept the responsibility, which later he would still on them, which is to say, and I have done this for you so that you can be a blessing to everybody else. I want to prove to you how much I love you, how unconditional and wonderful and amazing it is, so that you would then take the responsibility to be a light to the world 
a blessing to everybody else. Because if you think I love you because you're better than everybody, then your posture is going to be, isn't it so good to be us and not be all those other people? And we want nothing to do with any of those other people. But if, in fact, his love and his salvation is for us because it is his own unmerited favor, which is what we call grace upon us, then it gives us the reasons that we have, one, to say thank you for loving us in this way, but also help me then to love other people in this way. And that is, in fact, what we celebrate uh, even in this uh, time of Palm Sunday. In Luke's account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, he reveals, one, the amazing reality that our Savior, that he came in such humble circumstances. It's not simply that he loves the vulnerable and the poor, but that he became vulnerable and poor so that even on that final week as he entered in, he borrowed a donkey. He didn't go buy one. He owns all the wealth in all the universe. He can buy whatever he wants. But in his humility, he comes not riding in on a war horse to conquer, but humbly making himself dependent and saying, could we borrow somebody else's donkey so that we can ride in? Because he wants to enter into the city in such a way that every one of us would look and say, who of us could not go to him? Who of us could not find him approachable? That he wanted to come in in such a way that he would not intimidate anyone so that anyone and everyone would be willing to come to him. And as Luke unfolds the story, the the most immediate thing that happens after he comes in is his own weeping over the city. And so he entered into the city knowing that he would weep over the city. He entered into the city on Palm Sunday not thinking the praises that I'm getting on this day are just going to keep on going. He knew that they were going to choose Barabbas over him. He knew that he was going to go on a cross and be tried as a criminal. And he did it anyway. And he did it because his love for us is unconditional. He loves us even in our sin. And though sin is something that we struggle with individually and we struggle with collectively, what we celebrate in this coming week is that he loves us individually and he loves the whole of humanity for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life that whoever would believe in him as the end of Psalm 14 says when the Lord restores the fortune of his people that they would rejoice and be glad it should cause you to wonder to have a sense of awe that his love for us is so great when so many other people and so many times ourselves included would write us off so easily let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word and we thank you for its convicting power and its relevance that for us reading something over 2,000 years old and the psalmist grieving the pervasiveness of sin in his day feels like something that um, could have come from our own headlines and reading our papers yesterday. And we do grieve with him the, the way in which sin not only affects us as individuals but has permeated our culture and our world. And we grieve all the ways in which in our collective sinfulness, those who are vulnerable are most at risk and often suffer the greatest harm from our sin. 
We ask that you would forgive us of that. We ask that you would help us to repent from any ways in which we are complicit in that. But we also thank you for reminding us that you know about each and every one of those things. That you love and care for uh, the youngest, the weakest, the oldest. Uh, each and every one of us. And so we pray that you would help us to turn to you. To find as individuals and as a community ways to serve you. Ways to be blessings to those who are around us because of how great your love is for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.